Meltown founder Barry Gordy's job was to predict the future. He had the final say in all songs his studio made. With one listen, he would know if a song was going to be a hit or not. Well, at least most of the time. When it came to his biggest achievement, he blew it. For years, he sat on a stone-cold gym. He refused to release a song that he was convinced would be a flop. He had reasons to worry. Gordy had gotten rich selling bright, shimmy pop music to white America. Studio songwriters Norman Whitfield and Barrett Strong had presented him a cold, paranoid record, a mental breakdown of infidelity and self-loathing packaged as a pop song. The title derives from slavery-era back alleys, a shorthand for the double talk used to promote abolitionism. The image conscience magnate would never release a song so hopeless, so aggressive, and so black. It would damage the manicured reputation of his artists. His only option was to up the tempo and bury it as a deep cut on a Smokey Robinson album. He was convinced that nobody would ever bother listening to a random throwaway track called I Heard It Through the Grapevine. He was proven wrong again and again. Like the secret murmurs that blindsided the song's protagonist, I Heard It Through the Grapevine spread in secret until everyone recognized it as a masterpiece it was. Appropriately for a song about rumors, the song slightly changed in each retelling. Despite Gordy's fears, the song was a rounding success. No matter how musicians interpreted it, the American public followed. In 1967, Gladys Knight took her stomping scream along to number two. Two years later, Marvin Gaye charted one notch higher. His despondent meditation spent seven weeks perched at the top, becoming the then best-selling song Motown ever produced. Credence Clearwater Revival expanded the song into a gloom-filled ramble as a centerpiece of their 1970 number one record, Cosmos Factory. Roger Troutman freaked out Elastic Cover when R&B number one hit in 1981. Remakes were still charting as recently as 2018. That year, an inexplicable techno breakdown from Dutch producer Tiesto cracked the top 40. Yet, the most influential cover barely scrapped the lowest rungs of the charts. The fact that they even reached an 84 chart peak in the first place is remarkable, mostly because they were singing raisins. California raisins from the California vineyards. Don't you know that I heard it through the grapevine? In 1986, the California Raisin Advisory Board, a thing that I had never heard of before, created a campaign to convince consumers that raisins were the hip new snack. They aired a series of commercials where a guy hallucinates an animated conga line of raisins, singing, I heard it through the grapevine. Get it? Because grapes make raisins. The vocals were provided by Buddy Miles, an actual veteran of the 60s soul circuit. He was a former member of Jimi Hendrix's Band of Gypsies. For a brief window in the late 1980s, some of the biggest celebrities on the planet were claymation dried fruit. There were California Raisin toys, lunchboxes, bedsheets, a Nintendo game, an Emmy Award winning special, and they were so famous that Dad even dressed up as them for Mardi Gras one time. I did. The brief craze did not translate into sustained success. When the initiative ended in 1990, raisin sales actually were lower than when the campaign started. At no point did they actually make raisins seem like something you'd want to eat. The major fault on this plan was that no one wants to party with raisins, especially not ones that look like bulbous sunglass-wearing gargoyles. While it did not achieve its one goal, it still left quite the cultural legacy. By 1990, the California raisins had made over 200 million in media deals and secondary products. That money 
directly lined the burgeoning label Priority Records. The California Raisins were the first act Priority ever released. Flushed with Raisin Cash, they began signing other actual artists. After the Raisins, the second group they released was Gangster Rap Game Changers NWA. The second album Priority ever released was the Totemic Straight Out Compton. NWA's album is one of the most consequential recordings in popular music, setting the ground stage for rap's takeover as a dominant force in the 20th century. Yet, for all its acclaim, it does not quite match up to the label mates. For the whole time NWA existed, none of their singles appeared on the Hot 100. From a chart perspective, the California Raisins are a bigger band than NWA ever wore. Their sterilized, soulless cover of a song, initially banned for being too black and vengeful, helped pave the way for the most successful outlet of black aggression in music history. Even Barry Gordy cannot have predicted that. Welcome to Off Key. I'm Jeff Youngman, and with me is the South Carolina Raisin himself, Nate Youngman. This week's episode is called Gotcha Covered. We're going to look at how art inspires art by tracing the weird, circuitous route from a hit record back to its source. Let's start with my act, Spill the Wine. That journey begins with the hardest MC to rock the mic, Yo Suckas Hit It! not the Red Sox. That regretfully was Neil Diamond's corrosively chipper Sweet Caroline, a song I hear against my will at every Charleston River Dogs game. No matter my feelings toward the single, and if it wasn't clear, it sucks, Sweet Caroline is Neil Diamond's greatest pivot point. Before he secured superstardom as the hammy bedazzled showman we have come to begrudgingly expect, Diamond made do as an up-and-coming songwriter for hire as part of the Brill-Building hit machine. It was his job as an in-house musician to routinely crank out top 10 hits, which he did twice in 1966. That year, Diamond wrote two songs that paved his path to the upper reaches of the Billboard pop charts. He first made noise by landing his first solo top 10 with the garage rock grave-up Cherry Cherry. He then scored his first ever chart topper as a songwriter when he penned I'm a Believer, which the Monkees took to number one. Diamond had written I'm a Believer for himself, but buried the track on his second solo album, 1967's Just For You. Deeper in that same album was another hidden diamond written number one. That one took a lot longer to be discovered. Purely in terms of subject matter, Red Red Wine is not a unique song in the diamond catalog. It is a slow ramble from the perspective of a heartbroken man who can only forget the love he's lost with the help of an adult beverage. Wine was a common source of inspiration for Diamond. The first time he hit number one under his own name, it was 1970's Cracklin' Rosie, a musical retread of the same ideas he expressed in Red Red Wine, even down to the same drink. Yet, when the public heard the first version of the idea, they rejected it. The stately weeper stalled at a pitiful number 62 on the charts. Red, red wine, it's up to you, all I can do, I've done. Despite Red, Red Wine's lack of success, one of the people who did hear it was a Jamaican rock-steady singer, Tony Tribe. In 1969, he made minor tweaks to the song, changing it from a self-pitying strut to an up-tempo dance number. Tony Tribe never got much of a chance to make an impact behind that one single. He died in a car accident in 1970 as a less celebrated member of the infamous 27 Club, but the song endured. Red, red wine. 
While practically non-existent in America, Tribe's take was a modest hit in the UK, peaking higher than Diamond's version at number 46. That's the version a rascally group of biracial socialists loved. UB40 was created by accident. Singer Ali Campbell got into a bar fight on his 17th birthday. During the brawl, an assailant smashed a glass stein into his face. Campbell received an emergency corneal implant. It took 90 stitches to save his eye. He spent a month in the hospital. In a bizarre historical reprise of the event that brought about the formation of UB40, at Brett Kavanaugh's 2018 confirmation hearing for Supreme Court Justice, a report came out a drunken concert goer started punching Kavanaugh because he thought he was Ali Campbell. The United Kingdom compensates victims of violent crimes with a weekly stipend until they heal, like what a progressive country should do. Campbell used his funds to buy some instruments and recruited his brother Robin and some childhood friends for a jam session. They named themselves after the form broke young people used to sign up for the dole, Unemployment Benefits Form 40. The eight members of UB40 grew up listening to reggae in Birmingham, a working-class English town with a big West Indian population. One of the songs he grew up with was Tony Tribe's Red Red Wine. When they recorded their version, UB40 did not even know that it was Neil Diamond cover. Years later, UB40 percussionist and vocalist Astro, not the Jetsons' dog, said even when we saw the writing credit which said N. Diamond, we thought it was a Jamaican artist called Negus Diamond or something. UB40 showed the appreciation for Tony Tribe on their 1983 album, Labor of Love. The album was a contractual filler. UB40 did not have enough originals to make a whole new record, so they released a volume of random takes on reggae classics from the late 60s and early 70s to make their obligations. It worked out. Their version of Red Red Wine became a UK sensation. It was their first number one hit. It was also UB40's first single chart in America, getting a respectable number 34 on Billboard's Hot 100. later, UB40 tried the repackage trick again. They teamed up with the Pretender's front woman, Chrissy Hine, for a completely pointless cover of Dusty Springfield's classic Breakfast in Bed. Guy Zipolian, a program director at a Phoenix radio station, wasn't impressed. Zipolian decided that the new single was a dud. As part of his Saturday night dance party show, Party Patrol, he had a recurring segment called Should've Would've, dedicated to songs that he thought should have been bigger hits. Instead of playing Breakfast in Bed, Zapolian reached back in the archives to resurrect Red Red Wine. Because that single was no longer being actively promoted, he had to play the unedited version. That version differed from the original in one significant way. The original had edited out Astro's rap-like toasting at the end of the song. Zapolian played the album cut, Astro's Toast and All. Red Red Wine, you make me feel so fine. Monkey Park, you move upon the swing. Red Red Wine, you give me wally for zing. The thick-accented toast takes some liberal changes to the text. Astro starts out by saying that red, red wine makes him feel so fine and keeps him rocking all the time. And by the end, he's gotten into a story about a monkey who smokes weed. That monkey rules. Man, that monkey rules. <laughs> Obviously, with lyrics like that, the crowds in Phoenix loved it. So Zapolian put the song in rotation on his station. Then other pop stations started playing the song as well. The song took off nationwide. However, there was so much time between the chart runs that UB40 was already losing members. Ray Pablo Falconer, who'd co-produced the song, didn't live to see the track remount the charts. Falconer died in a 1987 car crash. His brother Earl, UB40's bassist, was driving. Earl served a six-month prison sentence for drunk driving causing his brother's death. When he got out of prison, he received some good news. 
The week he was released, Red Red Wine reached number one in the U.S. The revival of Red Red Wine had a ripple effect, inspired by Zapolian's one-man crusade to resurrect a five-year-old single. The brief fad put some previously unheralded songs back on the Hot 100 and ensured that they would remain radio mainstays. The strangest benefactor of this craze was the band's sheriff. Four years after this power glam group had broken up, they were somehow all the way to number one. In the nascent days of hip-hop crossover, Astro provided the first authentic rapping vocals on a number one hit. Red Red Wine helped clear the lane for other dance hall toasting infused rappers to break into the spotlight. They sound reverberate in number one singles from stars like Snow, Shaggy, Sean Paul. And Rihanna. But I wake up and Ellen's wrong. Just get ready for work, 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 work. It's a me, I'll be work, 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 work. You see me do me dirt, 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 dirt. It's a me, but I work, 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 work. For now, let's close out by saluting Astro, who passed away last year at 64. He lived long enough to see how he changed the music world. Here's a toast to him. You're listening to WOHM Charleston, 96.3 Ohm Radio. All right, that great story. UB40, more like you be a good story. Yeah, you try to say red, red wine over and over again without getting tongue-tied and see how you do. Okay, that was a compliment. Why do you have to <laughs> lash out at me every time I try to help you? Now it's time for my act. Act two, started from the bottom. Alfred Hitchcock earned his title as a master of suspense. From Psycho's Norman Bates to the titular birds to Rear Window's Laws Thorwald. Hitchcock is responsible for some of the most depraved villains in cultural history. While most audiences focus on the wife-slaying tenant, another of Rear Window's neighbors is equally capable of terrible things. A few apartments over, we briefly see the aspiring pianist crank away at the instrument. Building the credits as songwriter, it is not a particularly memorable role. The appearance is only noteworthy because it was the first time many Americans heard music from Ross Bagdasarian. Regretfully, it would not be the last. His bit role in Rear Window helped him secure the crucial Hollywood connections he needed to become a real-world songwriter, too. With that job, he set in motion a long, strange journey on the charts. His hand in some of the worst hits ever made would, six decades later, lead to some of the best. It almost never happened at all. 
It's easy to imagine a world where Ross Bagdasarian never made it big. Bagdasarian was a struggling Hollywood hanger-on. After Rear Window, he started working as an in-house session man, pinning in-production songs for the likes of Rosemary Clooney and Dean Martin. No song he released under his own voice made a dent on the charts. He was losing a fortune on his dreams. He wagered one last gamble on it. He would spend the remaining $200 to his name on a VM tape recorder. If he could not make his investment back, he would pack up his bags and move back home. His big break was a happy accident. Messing around the studio, he stumbled upon the recorder's speed modulator. The machine turned his singing into a quirky high-pitched squeal. Though not even remotely funny, Bagdasarian thought it was hilarious. He showed off the novelty on a series of comedic records. Both were a tremendous success. In quick turnaround, he had two number one hits. One under the remarkable stage name David Seville, and the others under his guise of Alvin and the Chipmunks. I have tried to be unbiased so far in this series, but I will break my pledge right now. Man, I hate those freaking chipmunks. What? <laughs> they are the absolute worst. Every December, I have to be subjected to their annoying trips for yet another Christmas. Is nothing sacred? While I will never understand their appeal, it is impossible to deny how popular they were in the late 1950s. Over the span of two years, the fictional group charted seven different times in the top 40, including twice in the top 10. All the more amazing because it was with the same joke each time. Well, if it works, you just keep on using it. Mm -hmm. The sustained draw fostered immediate plans to develop an animated cartoon series about the wacky trio. Unfortunately for Bagdasarian, he did not get his show up on the air until 1960. Initial snags over character designs delayed the show by four months. In the meantime, several imitators tried to fill in the demand gap with more helium voice critters. If you thought the chipmunks were talentless, imagine how irritating the knockoffs were. The most lucrative ripoff was the Nutty Squirrels. Their weapons grade level annoyance was the brainchild of Alexander Sasha Berland and Don Elliott. Instead of hula hoop obsessed chipmunks, Berman and Elliot provided sped-up vocals for two hip squirrels scatting along to bebop jazz. I'm not familiar with them. You know, you know, they do like me some bebop jazz. Well, the shameless scam worked. The nutty squirrels were on television sets a whole year before the chipmunks. Not that it was worth a particularly quality product. Desperate to beat the chipmunks to air, the nutty squirrels slapped their name on the cheapest series they could find. The production company imported pre-existing stills from random defunct European and Asian cartoons. Plot was not a priority. While they never matched their fellow rodent peers, the Nutty Squirrels translated TV ratings into selling records. In 1959, the Nutty Squirrels' Uh-Oh! peaked at number 14. Uh-Oh! is the same thing I say whenever I hear it. Though you may not have guessed it after listening to it, some major talent played on that track. The best of New York session musicians of the late 1950s backed the Nutty Squirrels, including sax legend Cannonball Adderley. Amazingly, the same year Adderley played on Miles Davis' Kind of Blue, he was upstaged by a bunch of vermin. 
The American taste for Nutty Squirrels did not last much beyond that one song. Formal Nutty Squirrel, Sasha Berlin could no longer pay the bills by pretending to be a jazz scatting rodent. He moonlit as a jingle and TV theme writer. His biggest agent was for the digestive aid company Alka-Seltzer. Alka-Seltzer asked Berlin to compose an instrumental track to score a borderline surrealistic commercial campaign they had coming up. The ad only features shots of a bunch of headless torsos in the middle of various activities. Inexplicably, the American public went absolutely crazy over the anti-acid. While I at least understand the precedent for the nutty squirrels, I am at a complete loss to explain why people would actively request stations to play the commercial on loop. Do you remember this phenomenon? I, I don't, I'm sure you're going to play a snippet of it, because I don't recall this at all. The big Alka-Seltzer fan of the 1960? Uh, well, I was only <laughs> nine. I don't think I had that That's much true. of stomach problems back then to worry about it. Berlin was so impressed by the fervor inspired by the catchy little tune that he released the backing melody as a standalone single. Session musicians gathered to play under the impromptu name The T-Bones. The instrumental jam, now called No Matter What Shape Your Stomach Is In, blew up. Yeah, that's a great song. Talking at number three, it is, to date, the greatest success for any musical tie-in for stomach remedy advertisement ever. <laughs> I believe that. Yeah. No Pepto-Bismol hit? <laughs> no. Liberty Records, who put out the now top ten hit, were blindsided by their luck. They logically never assumed that anything would come out of the commercial. With the unexpected hit, Liberty Records needed T-Bones to go on road to promote the single. But they had a problem. The T-Bones did not exist. They were nothing more than a studio collective. So Liberty had to scramble to find musicians to turn the imaginary group into a real band. Three low-tier Liberty Records signees were commissioned to tour as the T-Bones, even though they did not do so much as play a note on the original record. This sham arrangement was made up of Don Hamilton, Joe Frank Carallo, and Tommy Reynolds. Those <laughs> names ring a bell with me. Oh, really? And no one listening would know who they are, but... <laughs> well, it's okay, I do. When mania for burping drugs died down in 1969, the T-Bones broke up. The three members liked hanging out together, so they decided to spin off from the T-Bones and form a whole new group. The trio chose one of the clunkiest names in rock history, Hamilton, Joe Frank, and Reynolds. The ungainly mess of a name is the most interesting thing about Hamilton, Joe Frank, and Reynolds. Why do Hamilton and Reynolds use only their last name, but Joe Frank doesn't? Why does Joe Frank go by Joe Frank when his last name is not Frank? His name's Joe Frank Carolla. And it's not like people would stumble over themselves if it was Hamilton Carolla and Mills. Such a wonderfully dumb <laughs> move. I love it so much. Shortly after forming, the group was already on the charts. With a big slice of 70s cheese, the lovably Elvis S. pastiche, Don't Pull Your Love. Don't pull your love out on me, honey. Take my heart, my soul, my money. But don't leave me drowning in my tears. Not quite as well received as their song about farting aids. Don't Pour Your Love only picked at number four. For four years, they struggled to find that elusive second hit. The person who put them on the shot was not really known for his distinguishing taste anyways. Hugh Hefner. Playboy Records was a short-lived branch of Hugh Hefner's empire. While the bathrobe-clad gentleman has become an icon of American business, it is not for his musicianship. Consumers were apparently reluctant to buy albums from the same man as their pornography. 
the Enterprise folded only after releasing a handful of songs. Even in its brief existence, the label gained a reputation for not having much standards for quality. Some curious acts took advantage of that freedom. Interesting names on their registry include Jim Sullivan, a psyched out folkie turned alien abductee, whose body later mysteriously disappeared without a trace somewhere in the New Mexico desert. Huddy Ludbetter, a legendary bluesman who at this point had already murdered two people in two different instances, and the first American singles for future superstars, ABBA. They lost the ABBA contract because they forgot to distribute the Swedish artist songs. Bad call. Another bad call was when they rejected a Florida rocker because they thought his voice was too whiny. His name was Tom Petty. None of the people who actually stuck with Playboy label became major talents or draws. In Playboy Records' entire seven-year existence, they only ever made one top ten hit. In 1975, Hamilton, Joe, Frank, and Reynolds reached number one with the soft rock swooner, Fallen in Love. Baby, baby, falling in love. I'm falling in love again. If people talk about falling in love today, it is surely not for the lyrics. This is the song that rhymes B with B and with B. Some of the tune is remembered. In 2010, producer Boy Wonder sampled the luxurious opening of Fall in Love for a mixtape. He gave the sample to a promising young rapper. That rapper built his first solo single out of it. His name was Drake. You know a lot of girls be thinking my songs are about them, but this is not to get confused. This one's for you. Baby, you my everything. You all I ever wanted. We could do it real big. Bigger than you ever done it. You be up on everything. The central motif in Drake's breakout hit, The Best I Ever Had, swells courtesy of the string arrangement of Hamilton Joe Franklin Reynolds' Fallen in Love. In rushing the song out to the marketplace, Cash Money never bothered to clear the Fallen in Love sample. Playboy, which still had the rights of Fallen in Love, sued the capture of royalties. The lawsuit is still ongoing as we speak. Those legal troubles have not dampened Drake's winning streak. Right now, it's hard to succinctly explain how enormous Drake has been in the past 12 years since Best I Ever Had. It has not always been that way. He did not even get a number one until six years into his career. When he did, it was with One Dance, a song that lineage reaches back to the dance hall-infused toast of UB40's Red Red Wine. Another song with a fascinating journey to the top. When Drake finally reached the summit, he joined an elite class of musical luminaries. Artists as talented as a singing rodent turned gas relief pitchman and a porno magazine entrepreneur. Truly, some of the best America's ever had. I need a one dance, got a Hennessy in my hand. One more time for I go, high up I was taking a hold on me. This is the part of our show where I usually say, Good story, Nate. Very interesting, or something to that effect. And then I say, do you have something to close this out? Well, I get to close this out this time. What? We are recording this week's show while in my favorite city in the world, New Orleans, is in the midst of celebrating Mardi Gras. In honor of Mardi Gras, instead of Nate, I get to close our show with Smiler Lewis, who is known in the recording industry as the unluckiest man in New Orleans. Overton Amos Lemons was born in De Quincey, Louisiana in 1913. As a teen, he hopped a slow-moving freight train to New Orleans. 
Went to New Orleans, he found boarding with a Caucasian family and eventually adopted their last name, Lewis. He began playing guitar in clubs in the French Quarter with Tuts Washington's Dixieland Band, where he got the nickname Smiley because he was missing his two front teeth. Smiley played with a few other bands until 1950, when he was invited by the legendary New Orleans record producer Dave Bartholomew to record for his Imperial record label. Now here's where Smiley became unlucky. He recorded a number of songs, but none of them became hits until they were recorded by someone else. He recorded Blue Monday in 1954. Two years later, Fats Domino took it to number five on the charts. Elvis Presley had a number four hit with Smiley's song One Night after Smiley had already recorded that. Smiley recorded I Hear You Knockin', which then actress Gail Storm had a number two hit with, and later Welch rocker Dave Edmonds' version got to number four. Finally, a rewritten version of Smiley's Shame, Shame, Shame was used in the first season of Treme, the David Simon television series set in post-Katrina New Orleans. Smiley Lewis developed stomach cancer and passed away in 1966, a very talented man who never quite received the success he deserved. We'll close with Smiley's version of I Hear You Knocking. Thanks for listening. Thanks, everybody.